2: Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get
3: started. I understand why you don't vote. I completely understand it. But I will tell you that if the choice is vote or not vote, not voting will guarantee that nothing changes. Voting at least gives you you one more bite at the apple. And the more people we can get into the system, the more powerful your one vote becomes.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's tomorrow. The, the election is tomorrow. The election is tomorrow. Go vote. I mean, if you take nothing else from this episode, go vote. Go vote on your own behalf. Go vote on the future's behalf. And importantly, if it's if you live in a place where it is easy to vote, go vote on behalf of those who don't. Go vote on behalf of those who are being kept from voting. Go vote on behalf of those who were rejected at their polling place or will have their mail-in ballot canceled. If it is easy for you to vote and you are just busy, then vote as an act of solidarity with those who are trying really hard and are going to be turned away. Go vote. Go vote. Which is also a lead-in to this episode. What is on the ballot in this election is not just Joe Biden and Donald Trump and not even just down-ballot candidates. It is, as I've been arguing on the show for some time, it is democracy itself. It is democracy itself. We are in a space, as Ganesh Siddharthaman argued here a couple of weeks ago, we are in a space of transition. There was an equilibrium that dominated after the Civil War. There's an equilibrium that dominated after the New Deal. There's arguably a, a Reagan, post-Reagan equilibrium. And right now it is unsettled what kind of political system we are going to be what the rules of competition are going to be, what the the, the settled ideologies are going to be. And importantly, I, I think the fundamental question here is whether or not we are going to become some kind of multi-ethnic democracy. And if you say we're a republic, not a democracy, all I just want to say this because I, I have to, then all you're doing is showing you have no idea what the founders meant when they said republic or democracy. Nobody is talking about an Athenian democracy and nobody's even really talking about a majoritarian democracy. We are so far from that that it almost defies belief. But there is a question about whether or not we are going to be a country where a changing, diversifying nation is able to translate its voices into power and its desires to some degree with protections for minority rights and constitutional limits into governance, or whether we are going to become some kind of bastion of minority rule. And this has now become, sadly, a partisan fight. The Republican Party, far beyond Donald Trump and something that unites even a lot of the never-Trumpist factions, has become a party that increasingly understands democracy as inimical to its interests. And I have a bunch of quotes in this episode about showing that that's true, but it is true right? Donald Trump says it. He says that the Democrats want levels of voting that would lead to no Republican ever being elected again. George Will talks about it from the perspective of Supreme Court and judicial review. Mike Lee talks about it. I mean, it is everywhere in the Republican Party, the fear of democracy itself. And slowly in response, the Democratic Party is beginning to understand that at the core of everything it wants and everything it believes will have to be a commitment, a renewed commitment, a deeper commitment to democracy itself. This is incomplete on both sides, but it is the nature of the fight. And who wins it, it will decide what kind of parties we have in the future. It will decide the rules of politics in the future. So I do think we are in a fight right now to decide not just who wins, but what kinds of parties will win in the future, how they will win in the future. Do they win by appealing to a minority-empowered by certain rules of electoral geography and uh, laws that make it harder to get your vote counted? Or do you win by pursuing an agenda that appeals to most of the people most of the time? Those are profoundly different systems, profoundly. I was thinking about who I wanted to have this final pre-election conversation with, and there was actually for me only one choice. Stacey Abrams ran for governor a couple years ago. She had a historic, remarkable campaign. It is too simplistic to say she lost, but she did not win. Um, And she did not win under very sketchy circumstances. Circumstances speak to the difficulties of having uh, many of our elections governed by a party that does not believe in making it easy for people to vote and often sees its future uh, assured by making it hard for people to vote. But she's also just a politician who has thought about democracy at a deeper, more serious level. She's written a great book about this, Our Time Is Now. She is the CEO of Fair Fight Action and a number of other organizations trying to assure everything from the right to vote to a fair census. She understands this deeper fight about American politics in a way I think very few political figures do and she is worth listening to on it, and I hope others in the Democratic Party will also listen to her on it. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So the other day, Senator Mike Lee, the Republican from Utah, he tweeted that democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish. Rank democracy can thwart that rank democracy. What did you think of that? What did you what did you hear when you read that?
3: I heard the quiet part out loud about the 21st century version of a Republican party that has abandoned its pretense of changing minds and instead they intend to manipulate rules. What he was saying is that if we have reached a stage where our ideas can no longer garner sufficient votes to elect us, then we just have to do what we must to ensure that our vision of prosperity and liberty is the prevailing vision, regardless of whether the people want it or not. What do you think rank democracy means? I actually saw it as an insult. Typically when someone uses the term rank, what they mean is the you know most puerile, the most base, the least cultivated and the absolute bottom of opportunity. and so for him it is it was very much a disparaging term this notion that the populace the you know lowest of the low get to make decisions for themselves through this act called democracy that to him you know was revolting.
2: What i hear in that is some version of the these old ideas of mob rule um your book is very eloquent on this question of one of the central issues in the fight over democracy: being who counts, um, who who gets seen as a mob, and who doesn't. I think is really important here. But one thing I also notice in this debate is people will use de- the word democracy in many different ways. So, what do you use it to mean? what What defines democracy to you, and and what makes that important and worth fighting for?
3: You having studied political science and and law. We can go, and you know, certainly you are well-versed, but I saw a very succinct description of what I'm talking about and what the you know, facile argument made against it is. Look, a republic means you don't have a monarch and a democracy means the people get to have a voice. And so in the most basic of understandings, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how the people get to participate directly, in certain questions and through representatives and other questions, but it's the people getting to decide the vision for policy, the vision for government and the rules through which we will operate.
2: One of the things that I keep hearing in this and one thing I want to try to do in this conversation with you, because we're going to talk a lot about voter suppression efforts and and this bigger context of the election, is try to draw out what the, the rights argument is here the argument they're making to each other. And, and I, George Will, on this show a while back, um, and he wrote this book uh, last year called The Conservative Sensibility. And, and in it, he talks about James Madison's catechism. I'm actually not clear. If I'm saying that right, <laughs> of popular government. And he called it, he says, that is at the core of the conservative project. And, and he writes, what is the worst result of politics? Tyranny. To what form of tyranny is democracy prey? Tyranny of the majority. And when you read Republican thinkers on this, this is sort of the argument they make, that democracy is a trampling of the rights of, of, of minorities by the majority. Ilya Shapiro, who's director of constitutional studies at the Libertarian Cato Institute, I wrote a piece about democracy and he replied on Twitter. So you want majorities to violate the rights of minorities and individuals because that's what pure democracy is. I'm curious what you think when you hear this sort of anti-democratic impulse in American life justified in terms of the protection of
3: minority rights? It's it's such unabashedly, I use the word facile again, because it is this attempt to twist something that is so not just anti-democratic, but anti-civil rights, and to try to shape it and form it into something that seems noble, which it is not. Uh, But the second is, uh, it's a cry of loss. It's this recognition that their ideological underpinnings no longer have salience, and they can no longer lean on this majority that they created, because that majority is now quickly becoming a minority. And embedded in this argument is a fear that what they have visited on others through the trampling of civil rights, through the trampling of human rights, through the exclusion of so many communities. There's this deep fear that what happened to others at their hands will now be visited upon the Republican Party and upon conservative thinkers. But before getting to that, I think there is this very basic misapprehension or misapplication that they're using. Because what democracy has garnered for the last 243 years, when it has been appropriately applied has been the expansion of access to rights for minorities, the expansion of inclusion. And their argument is that that inclusion has become too effective. And in order to preserve their ideological constructs, that inclusion must be thwarted. And they are then trying to use James Madison and his arguments to undermine the un- entire experiment because the entire experiment, you know, the outcome of the experiment as we have seen it no longer caters to their ideological belief systems. So in your
2: in your book, as you tell the story, the election of Barack Obama is a central part of the narrative about particularly the attack on on voting rights. What did the 2008 election and, and his presidency do here? What what did it set off?
3: Much like the Voting Rights Act of 1965, The Obama election was the proof of fruition of the 65 Voting Rights Act, which was when coupled with the other Civil Rights Act, it was the embodiment of the protection of the rights of the minority. It said you will be able to participate in your governance for the first time, and those who would intercede or block you will be restrained from doing so. And it took 50 years, but in 2008, when Barack Obama was elected, it was among the most effective elections we've ever had, in that communities that had long been denied access, who had long excluded themselves because they did not believe they were welcome, who had never been engaged or even invited into participation, because of the nature of his campaign, because of the nature of his election, And yes, because he was a Black man who represented so much of what had been done wrong in America and could be made right, his election was emblematic of what democracy could achieve. And what Republicans saw in that moment was the worst nightmare of a party that refuses to meet the moment and try to adapt to a changing populace. They are still governing from... a a space of paucity and a space of irritation that anyone else would dare to think their voices matter. And so what we saw following from his election was the retrenchment, immediate retrenchment on almost any right that could be pulled back and pulled away from minority voters uh, because their participation at such numbers, such numbers to create this sea change in what it meant to be a president in the United States was untenable. And Mitch McConnell said it very clearly. And while he may not have used race as his frame, what he was responding to was the most diverse community of Americans to ever participate in the selection of a leader. And he could not countenance it, nor could his party. And so one of the,
2: the things that your book emphasizes in a way I really appreciate because it it forms some of how my understanding of politics has evolved over these past couple of years is that there is a connection between demographic change in this country, um, groups also attaining the power to to not just have a voice, but to to exercise power in our democracy and, and the rollback of voting rights. And that what's sort of happening here is a lag, a really, really important disjuncture between the power this rising generation can hold and the geography of this country as it exists, the way elections are actually run as they exist, the way things are distributed across state legislatures, and of course, the Supreme Court. And so you you put some real emphasis on the Shelby v. Holder decision uh, gutting much of the Voting Rights Act and how that set the stage for a, a really different equilibrium around voting rights than we had even 10 years ago. So can you talk a little bit about that case? Um, I think people sometimes know it in broad strokes, but not not in its details and not in what it actually allowed to happen?
3: To understand the impact of Shelby, you have to first understand the nature of democracy and the right to vote in America. The Constitution has never granted an affirmative right to vote. What we look to in the Constitution through the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, and the 26th Amendment are moments where, as a populace, we have decided that we would no longer exclude certain persons from their participation. So in the 15th Amendment, Black men were granted the franchise. In the 19th Amendment, ostensibly white women were granted the franchise. And before we get to the 26th Amendment, which expanded the franchise to those 18 to 21, we had this reality that the right to vote does does not exist as an affirmative opportunity. But what does exist in the Constitution is the delegation of authority for the administration of elections to states, which sounds very benign until you realize that often the preclusion to accessing the right to vote has come from the states. And so for most of American history, voter suppression has been in almost entirely the construct of states what the voting rights act did in 1965 was shatter the impermeable nature of states to say who couldn't could not vote and so what the voting rights act said was you could not use race and by 75 you could not use language as a way to preclude access to the right to vote and this was transformative because even though on paper these rights existed the 15th amendment didn't disappear With Jim Crow, it was simply subverted by Jim Crow because the Jim Crow laws that permitted an apartheid state to exist in the South said that while you could not stop a person from voting because they were black, you had no affirmative obligation to ensure that that right to vote was real. And when you add in women of color, particularly black women, it wasn't until 1965 with the Voting Rights Act that said that states could not take these proactive steps to block the right to vote through poll taxes, through literacy tests, through the closing of polling places. Essentially, any action taken by the state that would interfere with the right of people of color, of people who spoke English as a second language, to stop their participation in the right to vote, those could not be countenanced without having the Department of Justice say it's okay. And only certain states were included because only certain states had a long and storied history of blocking the right to vote. So when you fast forward to 2013, what we had was this extraordinary success where the Voting Rights Act not only increased the number of people who were participating in our elections, it also increased the number of people of color who were being elected to higher office. And as that happened, as it got more and more aggressive, as more and more people were added to the roles, were able to exercise the franchise, you saw this diversity of leadership, this diversity of democracy. And from its very beginning, there were attacks on the Voting Rights Act because it was seen as too interventionist. It was seen as taking away states' rights to discriminate against who could participate in elections. And so in 2013, the final evisceration of the Voting Rights Act by the gutting of Section 5, because of the change in the formula that's in Section 4, what we had was essentially a get out of jail free card for states that wanted to discriminate. Only what was different this time is that it was no longer relegated to those states that had participated in the Confederacy and participated in voter suppression through Jim Crow or if you were in the Southwest, uh, through you know restrictions on Latino and Native American voters and in some parts of the country on Asian American voters. What you had was this proliferation across the country of voter suppression techniques that had been prohibited clearly by the Voting Rights Act that were now permissible. And that's why you saw the rapid shutdown of polling places. That's why you saw the expansion of restrictive voter ID laws. That's why in, the, in 2020, we are seeing so many cases that essentially challenge state laws that are designed to restrict who has access to the right to vote. And the reason those rights are no longer being protected is because we no longer have a Voting Rights Act that gives citizens through the Department of Justice the right to demand access to the right to vote.
2: Uh, I want to draw something out that that you touched on there. It, it's something you're suggesting that what the Voting Rights Act was built to to deal with was voter suppression due functional to racism, voter suppression due to an explicit desire to uh, a, a, a continue white supremacy but that in its current incarnation, now that the Voting Rights Act has been gutted, but also the parties have polarized it in different ways, that this anti-democratic impulse is in a way enlarged, that while there's obviously race and racism tied into uh, American politics, that now it's the Republican Party with a broader set of partisan incentives using these uh, approaches, stratagems, etc., to corner democracy, to try to make democracy less of a threat to them. And so in a weird way, that we're actually dealing with a broader attack on voting rights, uh, at least in its intent, um, now that it has become party-wide, not just kind of Southern and racist.
3: Agreed. I mean, one of the reasons I always include the 26th Amendment in my litany is that we often just sort of, you know, elided and we, we talk about the 15th and the 19th. But let's remember that one of the most aggressive attacks on voting rights have targeted young people young people are the least likely to have the type of IDs that are required. Young people have faced restrictions on where the IDs that they do have can be used. And you know the most popular example, of course, is in Texas, where you can vote with your gun license that you may spend you know, $20, $50, $100 on, but you cannot vote with your student ID, which you spend thousands of dollars on. And the reality that happened in Uh, New Hampshire, where this year, or in 2019, they attempted to restrict the domicile of students because they knew students have an impact on their elections. In Florida, where they removed early voting locations through legislation because too many students voted in the last election. And so, yes, what began as an attack on largely African-Americans, but we cannot excuse, ignore what happened for at least another decade in Arizona, often under the leadership of William Rehnquist, which was the attack on Latinos and Native Americans, people of color have always been the target. And you layer on top of that young people and poor people. And in that, you see a coalition that has long suffered from oppression under conservative ideology, and therefore would be much more likely to access good policy and good decision-making if their ability to participate in ranked democracy was real.
2: The Ezra Show will be back after a short break. borough.com slash box something that this brings up that 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 i worry about a lot right now is, is what i've taken to call the doom loop of democracy which is you have a Republican Party that increasingly does not win power through winning majorities of the of the vote or even pluralities of the vote. So the president, of course, was the runner up in the, the election from a voting perspective. And the Republican majority in the Senate represents, I think it's 15 million fewer people than the Democratic minority in the Senate. Then they appoint Republican uh, appointees to the Supreme Court, um, even as we've been speaking uh, over these past couple of days. There have been a number of decisions laid down by the Supreme Court, which now Amy Coney Barrett has joined uh, to make it harder to count votes, make it less likely the vote that absentee ballots that come in a day or two late will be counted. And so you have this situation where as a party that wins power undemocratically has that power, it uses that power to then make it easier to win undemocratically, setting off the loop again and again and again. And that that can really lead a country in a deeply undemocratic election, because if you win the rule, if you rewrite the rules of the game, then ultimately the other party has no choice but to follow them. How serious of a, of a risk do you think that is if Republicans are able to keep winning this way?
3: It's absolutely the risk that we face. So one of my dear friends, William Dobson, wrote a book called The Dictator's Learning Curve, and he actually uses this approach as one of the examples of how authoritarian populists become dictators, how they gradually accrue power. It's by using the systems to their benefit and when the systems no longer benefit them, manipulating the externalities of those systems to give themselves permanent power. In the United States, what we're watching through gerrymandering, but also through trying to restrict access to absentee ballots during a pandemic creating laws and rules that by their own admission, are intended to limit access to democracy. It creates to your point, this loop where you can keep using the system to strangle democracy until you, you know to misappropriate Grover Norquist so you can you know make it small enough that you can drown it in a bathtub. And the challenge is that as long as they can maintain a certain degree of power, Even the overwhelming majority of Americans are, the numbers are insufficient given the structure of our system to guarantee that democracy works. I mean, that's the challenge of the electoral college. It's, you know, Genesis was grounded in racism and classism, but it's, you know, longevity is grounded in this notion that this is the last vestige of a type of system that will permit Victory not to those who can win the greatest number of votes, but to those who can manipulate the system to their benefit.
2: Yeah, I, I just add one more thing to that, that. The reason I think people sometimes underestimate it as a as a loop is that as you win more power in some of these places or some of these institutions, you can do different things. So mm-hmm. right before Amy Coney Barrett was um, confirmed, there was a case coming out of Pennsylvania where Pennsylvania Republicans tried to get a stay to keep the Pennsylvania electors from being able to count ballots that came in or needed to be counted after um, election day. And in a 4-4 deadlock, the Supreme Court was not able to, to do anything with that. But now that the center of gravity on the court shifts right and so you have a 6-3 conservative majority, maybe you win that case where you didn't before. And so as you get more power, new things become possible. Uh, and that to me is the one of the really scary pieces of this because you simultaneously have a party that is winning some power, but it's becoming more desperate.
3: Well, the other example I would use is what we saw happen to governors in Michigan, North Carolina and Wisconsin, that when Republicans won in 2010 and in successive elections, they gerrymandered maps in 2011 to give themselves super majorities in state legislatures. When they finally lost power, when popular votes finally elected Democratic governors, rather than concede that their victories have now been lost, they changed the rules for what governors could do. They used the last gasp of power to change the rules so that the new governors could not use the powers to reverse their uh, behavior. And instead, these Democratic governors were hamstrung, sometimes to the point of losing constitutional powers that had existed for more than 100 years. And so again, that loop is Using the power that you have to not simply constrain power, but to constrain the ability of the electorate to leverage the power that they thought they had when they went to go and vote. They elected these leaders for exactly this reason. And in a moment of sore loserness, the Republican majorities in these states use their legislative powers to strip the gubernatorial executive powers of its full force.
2: And I want to build on that in one way because this is why I started our our conversation and I write so many pieces now about the building of a genuine anti-democratic ideology in Republican and conservative circles. This kind of thing is hard to do if it, is in too much conflict with your rhetoric or it's in too much conflict with what the the people in your party believe. I mean, when gerrymandering comes on the ballot, it often loses. Um, You've seen red states move towards independent commissions. Um, There there are a lot of like ordinary Republicans who have pretty small democratic ideas of how government should work. But as the party's machinery becomes more committed to an actual anti-democratic ideology, then what seems reasonable to do to to pick up on some on some of the examples you just gave becomes very different. Um if part of your point as a party is to not allow ranked democracy to overturn the rights of the minority by which you mean your rights as a political minority who's losing elections to stay in power, then these things become necessary, right? you're You're waging a noble war against the mob. And it's the way these things combine, right? The, the the power grab here, I think, is actually driving the ideological change. But the ideological change ends up over time justifying ever more extreme versions of 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 the power grab that would have been shocking to people say ten years ago.
3: We know that what is being couched by Mike Lee and others as nobility and protection is nothing more than fear and. I mean, calling it sore loserdom underwhelmingly describes what's happening. We know that the demographic shifts in the United States portend a very dramatic shift in the allocation of resources and power in a nation that is becoming more and more diverse. And part of that is the fact that for so many years, these communities were denied access to those resources, denied access to that power. And the responsible. Retort is to then do what you need to do to invite these new persons into the shared power structure that is our democracy. That's the right thing to do. And there is absolutely a negotiation that should happen about how fast, in what ways, and what the remedies are to challenges. But instead of engaging in that dialogue, which is what should always animate a democracy, Republicans have decided that the answer at the macro level is simply to refuse to play the game fair. Now, to your point, we do have at the individual level and often at the city and county level, a more robust debate about what should be because the effects are more amplified the closer you get to actual lives at the city and county level. It's when you get to the state legislative level and the federal level that we start to see the most aggressive iterations of this. But we also have to remember that in Florida, 65% of Floridians restored the rights of ex-offenders to give them the right to vote. This was not done by whim. It was not done by happenstance. And it was not done along party lines. It was a bipartisan solution to a problem that was grounded in slavery and racism. And yet, because it was going to cost them elections, the will of the people was absolutely ignored by a Republican governor, Republican legislature, and then by conservative control of our court system. The moment the architecture of the Republican Party decided that it could not win based on actually meeting people where they are and doing what the people needed to have done, especially to correct past uh, inequities, when they decided that the only way to win was to rig the system, And, and, and I hate that phrasing because it, you know, unfortunately has been, I think, overused. But when they decided to rewrite the rules of the system and when they decided that they were going to instead undermine 243 years of a commonly held belief in our nation that democratic processes are a native good, that desperation has, I think, done more damage to the longevity of the party uh, Than it has to almost anything else I've seen them do in recent years.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of wisdom in that. I'm just going to add one more, just quick thing for on just how deep this has has gotten. Mike Lee is among a number now of Senate Republicans and elected Republicans who has argued the 17th Amendment should be repealed, ending the direct election of U.S. senators. And uh, of course, the reason for that is that Republicans are much stronger in state legislatures than they are in actual statewide elections. So that would give, if you just looked at the way the the legislatures are broken down now, uh, Republicans at least 58 seats in the U.S. Senate. And and so the the thoroughgoing nature of the move away from democracy, I just think is bigger than 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 people recognize. But I want to sit in this tension a little bit between how much Republican elites have begun to turn against democracy and the degree to which that actually still conflicts with the way people understand America and and, and fair elections. And so how things get couched. Something you write about really eloquently in the book is that voter suppression takes new guises now. It has to cloak itself in, in, in new language. And in particular, it often does so in user error, that there are a lot of things done now to say that, the reason your vote is getting rejected is because we didn't want you to vote, but because you screwed up. Can you talk
3: a bit about that? So when I decided not to concede the election, so I to be really clear. I, I talk about this in the book. I acknowledge the legal sufficiency of the numbers. I challenged the system that permitted those numbers to be the tote board. And I challenged the legitimacy of a system that could permit voters to be denied their rights, not because they weren't eligible, but because they had failed some failings of rules and bureaucratic restrictions, in part because the, the insidious nature of voter suppression in the 21st century is that it no longer uses the blunt instruments of law enforcement as obstacles to voting or the literacy tests, the things that have become reviled in their native form. Instead, you see the poll tax, but the poll tax is now making returning citizens pay fees and fines, but there's also poll tax in making people stand in line for hours on end. When you live in most states, you do not get paid time off for going to vote, which means that if you have to spend what essentially amounts to a day's worth of pay, if you're in Georgia and then some in Texas, standing in an eight-hour line, you have lost those wages and you have threatened or jeopardized your job but when people look at it from the outside they say oh you know that's an enthusiasm but they also say that well you made that choice well it is it is not a choice that should be foisted upon any american to decide between keeping your job and casting a vote but we make it the personal responsibility of each individual citizen as opposed to questioning a system that works with extraordinary fluidity in wealthier parts of a community and in whiter parts of a community and works with the pace of a snail in black and brown communities. Another example is that of when polling places close down. The argument is, well, just, you know, if the polling places close down, if you really wanted to vote, you would make your way to vote. Well, if you live in a community where because of the voting structure, you don't have a populace that could demand public transit, and the one or two polling places that were near you were two miles or five miles, and now they're 10 or 15 miles away, you physically are precluded from being able to exercise the right to vote, but that's often attributed to your failure to plan. And then with voter ID, that is, you know, it's the most aggressive pseudo logic that I've ever heard. Number one, America has always required that you prove who you are to vote. That has always been a requirement in, in our states. What is different today is not that you have to have ID. It's the form of ID you have to have. And it's the impossibility of ID or the extraordinarily hard ability to access that ID that gets alighted and people get treated as though they're just too lazy They're willing. They're you know they'll have the ID. They need to get on a plane or buy a beer, but not to vote, which is completely untrue. We have what happened in North Dakota in 2018 when Native Americans were told they had to have a voter ID with a residential address, but the residential address had to be granted by the city or state that refused to grant them a residential address, and the Supreme Court said, well, because Native Americans are not the majority of the population even though they are disproportionately and directly harmed because they're not the majority of the population, it's okay. Those are examples of how bureaucratic rules take on both the veneer of logic, but have the most heartless effect because it distracts from the responsibility of the state to engage in providing the right to vote, but it also convinces citizens that's either too hard or they were not they were not worthy enough and that they didn't work hard enough and when you do that you not only block or you not only discourage their voting you often discourage entire communities from voting because those stories become legend and that legend becomes truth and communities decide it's not worth it because it's just too hard and it's not that they didn't try it is that the barriers to access were nearly impossible. And why keep beating your head against a stone wall?
2: And, and there's a something you point out in, in the book that I think is a really important point is that this also operates in a feedback loop with an increasingly minoritarian and, and, and unresponsive system. I mean, let's say that you're a voter and you fight your way through this obstacle course, right? And you end up waiting in line on a day when you've got Parenting responsibilities and occupational responsibilities, and you know, you need to take out the dog, but you wait three hours and fifty minutes to vote. And it was hot and you just sat there. And then even so, you vote for somebody, and even though they win the majority, they don't actually get put into office, or they do, but you can't do anything in politics anymore because of the filibuster and everything else. So nothing changes for you. And You did all this for for nothing or less Mm -hmm. than nothing to, to, to just be disappointed. And so it becomes very rational after that when so much is being asked of you to vote and so little comes back from your vote to begin to disattach and detach from the system. Exhaustion is a very powerful tool of voter suppression.
3: Absolutely. Exhaustion and despair are both incredibly legitimate reasons for not participating. When people ask me, Oh, how, you know, I'm talking to my teenager or I'm talking to someone who just refuses to vote. How do I convince them that they need to vote because someone died for the right? I appreciate the instinct to call on the history of pain and the legacy of suffrage, but I remind people there's a legitimate reason to feel despairing. If you've lived in intergenerational poverty and Every time you've attempted to participate in the system, the response has been not simply to make it difficult, but to make it worthless, then you are not going to make any headway if you don't acknowledge the legitimate disdain that is held for this system. But the solution isn't to harangue someone into voting. It is to do what you can to mitigate those obstacles, but also to acknowledge the legitimacy of their pain. I begin by saying, yeah, I understand why you don't vote. I completely understand it. But I will tell you that if the choice is vote or not vote, not voting will guarantee that nothing changes. Voting at least gives you a you know, one more bite at the apple. And the more people we can get into the system, the more powerful your one vote becomes. And I think that's the place where the you know, crafty nature of the current Republican Party has been situated for twenty years. They can count. And they know that we have reached a demographic inflection point that is no longer simply one of numbers. It's numbers that now have power attached to it. It's the ability of these numbers to aggregate and to communicate in order to leverage the changes they want, which is why it is no longer feasible to simply use the traditional means of voter suppression. The it, sort of nuclear option that has been employed is designed to try to meet a moment that has been predicted for 30 years, but has only come to real fruition in the last decade.
2: What would a system that wanted people to vote look like? <laughs> Oregon.
3: Um, I mean, <laughs> Oregon and Washington state do it pretty well, although there are they're challenges in both states. But number one, automatic registration and not this notion of automatic registration when you go and get your driver's license. It's been, there's now this popular notion that because you can get it at the DMV, it's automatic registration. No, you're still making it a condition of suffrage that you have to go and get an ID. That should not be. Your birth as a citizen is your guarantee of suffrage in the United States. That should be it. And therefore, it should be the government's responsibility to register you to vote automatically. And it should be your option to take your name off of the list but it should not be the option of a bureaucrat to decide that you are not a voter. Number two, same-day registration. There is a legitimate requirement that people who are voting on an issue should be around to participate in the decision, but also the consequences. And so you should have to register when you get to a new place, but you shouldn't have to time your move to figure out the deadline for showing up. You should be able to register on the day you go to vote and be able to demonstrate that you are who you say you are and you live where you say you live. We should have automatic mail-in voting. We should have automatic access to early voting and of course, same day voting. We should have voting centers. You should not have to rely on a precinct-based system because what early voting proves in every single state where it is active is that you don't have to actually go to the schoolhouse down the street from you in order to cast your ballot. If they have if we have the technology to permit you to vote in any voting system, any voting center, then you should be able to do that throughout the election, including on election day, because we are too mobile a population you know, during the time of human contact where we need voters to be able to <laughs> the vote. Good old days. Exactly. <laughs> voters should be able to vote where they are. And we have the technology to make it so. Um, we also should have voting as a holiday, but that holiday is not in lieu of it, should be in addition to making certain that every person gets paid time off to go and vote. And the reason both are necessary, the holiday recognizes that the majority of the people are probably going to take election day as the day they cast their ballots. But we have populations, including those who are caregivers to the disabled, who will need to be working on election day so the disabled can go and vote. You have entire populations that cannot meet a single day of opportunity, and so we need to provide paid time off to go and vote. And we need to have systems that mean that you don't have to give someone eight hours of time off to go and vote because the systems should be equitable, not equal. Equal says you need this exact same thing. Equitable says we meet you and your needs where you are. And often for communities of color, namely black communities, the challenge is that they are still resourced at their pre-engagement level and at the last level of any attention being paid. So they have fewer resources. They do not account for surges in voting, and they often have substandard equipment. So those are the major pieces to it. There is a lot more that I could go into, and which is why I include a chapter in the book. But (laughs) those basics transform our elections because the architecture of voter suppression is, can you register and stay on the rolls? Can you cast a ballot? And does your ballot get counted? Same-day registration, automatic registration takes care of the first, early voting centers and making sure that people have time off and all of those pieces take care of the second. And the third is making certain that because we now have uniformity in the ways we vote, we then diminish the likelihood of votes being cast out. And that's the most important piece, that if you make it through this gauntlet, your ability to be secure in the fact that your vote will count should be real.
2: The Ezra Klein Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Support for
0: the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try GreenLight for free. GreenLight.com slash gray area.
1: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise.
2: We've been talking here about the way the Republican Party has become the, the party of anti-democracy, the way they become ideologically committed to that, the way they become somewhat creative in trying to to, to make that more of a reality. Has the Democratic Party become the reverse? They passed H.R. 1, which is a big package of, of voting reforms through the House in 2019, H.R. 4, which is an attempt to restore the Voting Rights Act. Are those sufficient? Do you think the party is committed to this at the in the way the Republican Party is committed to its opposite?
3: I, I think we are. And I think it's because the composition of the Democratic Party is antithetical to the composition of the Republican Party. The Republican Party, by nature or by nurture, is now and has been for many years, predominantly white. And that means that typically almost everyone else, so non-whites and then those with more progressive values or even moderate values in you know the twenty twenty version of the Republican Party are, Democrats. And because we largely have two-party systems, that's what we have. So it's a matter of survival, I think, for Democrats to actually pay attention to the nature of how democracy should work. One of our challenges has been that for many years, though we knew voter suppression was real, we had been coached into not calling it aloud because the fear was if you spoke it aloud, it would have the effect of dissuading voters. I grew up in the South. Voter suppression has the effect of dissuading voters. So my willingness to call it out comes about because whether you say it or not, we are experiencing it. And we have the responsibility to actually name the enemy so we know what we're fighting and we can argue for and agitate for and advocate for change. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that H.R. 1, H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, but also Ron Wyden's bill, Amy Klobuchar's bill, Uh, We've seen good bills that have come out during COVID that I think move us further than even HR1 did, because I believe automatic absentee balloting, mail-in balloting needs to become the law of the land in every state, and every state should have uniform rules. We should not have 43 cases being waged to determine if you make a mistake, do you get to cure it? Do you have to find a witness in the midst of quarantine uh, to get your ballot in? you have to have a notary public who is not allowed to have human contact authorize your absentee ballot? So we should use our learnings from COVID to make certain that no matter where you live in America, you have the same baseline access to democracy. We should be able to make it easier. If a state wants to do something to make it easier, they should be able to. But no state should be permitted to make it harder. If
2: Democrats win the House and they win the presidency and they win the Senate, H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 will pass the House um, again and they will die to a filibuster. Um, immediately, There's absolutely no chance they will get through a filibuster. They can't go through budget reconciliation. One of the most striking things that happened this year and potentially one of the more important, I thought, was when Barack Obama stood up at John Lewis's memorial and he told the assembled Democrats that if they wanted to honor John Lewis, they should pass these bills. And if the filibuster stopped them, they should get rid of the filibuster because it has always been used to stop uh, voting rights, civil rights um, and, and racial equality in this country. What do you think about the filibuster and in particular the Senate Democrats who say they are committed to democracy, but worry that getting rid of the filibuster would be would undermine um, the political system and the comedy and compromise needed to make it work?
3: I would refer them to the statement that opened this conversation. Mike Lee was saying the quiet part out loud. I believe in a filibuster because if we can guarantee Permanent access to the right to vote in the United States. We will have the obligation at the federal level and the Senate level to actually negotiate in good faith. I was a state legislator for 11 years. I lived under a supermajority in the Senate and was always in the minority in the House. And yet I was able to negotiate and secure. Bills and funding, and all of the good things that you're supposed to try to do when you're in the legislature. We were also able to block bad. And we did so not because we had the majority, but because we had a common responsibility to get reelected. And we knew we'd have to get reelected by people who knew what we were doing and could decide to go with someone else. And the more competitive we became as a state, the more often we saw compromise and negotiation as opposed to fiat and, you know, an obliteration of the rights of others. The current governor still has a problem with all that, but one of the reasons you tend to see more comedy in state legislatures is that they have this obligation to keep working together because you have to pass a budget and there are certain things you have to do. And when you put aside, you know, basic ideology, There are other things that require a commonality of need that will get people to work together. The filibuster has been a useful tool, but it was only useful when people actually believed in and abided by the basic rules of the system. The Republican Party has shown itself incapable of following rules it does not like. And we cannot get to a nation where citizens get to participate in the selection of those senators if we do not eliminate the filibuster to create the very baseline democracy that we require for this time.
2: I'm gonna nudge on that a little bit because one thing one thing pinged me there, which is that the Republican Party has been unable to follow rules it doesn't like. And, and what I think is interesting about the Republican Party it And the Democratic Party, for that matter, is they will follow the rules. It just turned out the rules created a minoritarian path to power, a minoritarian path to obstruction. And one of the places where I end up in a lot of disagreement with people uh, in, in some of these issues is that I think you get the political parties and the political system that your rules will deliver. And so if you can block everything um, as a minority party, you will. If you can't, then maybe you actually have to compromise to get things done because having your hand and fingerprints on a bill is better than endlessly being useless and out of power. Um, and if you can't win with 46% of the two-party vote as the Republican Party did in 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 2016, then maybe you'll pick standard bearers who might win 51% of the two-party vote because you need to win more 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 votes. I think we've become very I don't know, m- mythological about our political system. We have an invented history as if like what we're doing now goes all the way back to the founders, as if the founders themselves were somehow infallible, as if we were built for political parties of, of this nature. And we've somehow, I think, just lost this idea that you you want to create rules that are going to give you the kind of political system and competition that you want. And it's maybe my my one piece of optimism about the Republican Party. I think if they had to compete for votes, they would. It's just that they don't. The rules don't
3: make them. And so they don't. Yeah, you know, that, that's exactly my point about the state legislatures. This notion of the filibuster, to your, your to your point, it is a romanticized idea that this is what gives the Senate nobility. No, it gives the Senate you know, deniability. They get to pretend that they couldn't come to a decision because they couldn't get 60 out of 100. Number one, we haven't always had 100 senators. We also have not always had the filibuster. And what we do need, we've got to restore the building blocks of our democracy, which is that we've got to make certain Americas, Americans can vote, which is why, in my mind and, and in the mind of President Obama, if you have to destroy a made up rule to save the basic notion of who we are as a nation, a republic that elects its leadership and a democracy that determines how that leadership takes shape. It is worth doing, and if in doing so, you also create a competitive nature at every level of government so that we have to talk to one another and negotiate with one another to get what we need, then that is the truest example of who we are supposed to be as a nation.
2: We've been talking so far about the political aspect of democracy, the access to the, to the political system itself. But, but I want to, in the time we have left, talk about a couple of the, the other components. And, and, and one is the economic dimension of it. Um, we've talked about the political party incentives here, but we also live in a time of extreme income and wealth inequality. Uh, And we also live in a time when a lot of people have very, very little. They don't have a job. They don't have Medicaid in many states that have not expanded the, the, the Affordable Care Act. And there are ideas of democracy that go well beyond the political aspects, but that argue that there's a certain amount of sufficiency needed and then also equality needed in order for there to be a bare level of democratic equality and relations between people. I, I'm curious how you think about that that economic dimension of it and, and, and what it does or doesn't demand uh, of us.
3: That is what animates me as much as anything else. So when I did not become governor, I had some time. I created Fair Fight to focus on protecting access to democracy and protecting the franchise itself. I created Fair Count because the U.S. Census is the least understood and most powerful instrument of strategy, planning, and investment in this nation. And I created the Southern Economic Advancement Project because the reason we need the right to vote and the reason we need a fair and accurate census is that the policies that govern our daily lives, particularly those economic policies, determine the quality of life that we get to live. I believe in democracy because I think it is the best system available for governance. I believe in voting not because of its mythical or mystic power as an act, but because voting is how we get to the things we need. And for me the pragmatism of a fair democracy and an active democracy and an enabled democracy is that the only way we can tackle these intractable issues of income inequality, wealth inequality, but also lack of access to healthcare, an education system that is entirely predicated on your zip code and your race. These challenges cannot be met if we do not have an active and engaged democracy that includes the voices and the lives of those who suffer most when we do not make the best choices. And so, yes, the economic dimension to me is the motivating factor. I grew up. Working poor in Mississippi. And in many ways, my parents were able to either abrogate the effects or work around it. But people aren't born into the world with my parents. And so my obligation, my commitment, my drive is grounded in this idea that our economic well being is entirely. Premised on our access to democracy.
2: You, you tell a story in your book that I just thought was wild about uh, a colleague of yours, a Republican colleague, during a debate over spending on education, pulling you aside and, and saying, "Is if I'm remembering this correctly, that well, look, you didn't have any of this, and you turned out fine." So, could you just talk a, a, about that for a minute? Because I, I think that speaks a lot to a lot to the dueling ideologies uh, around this particular question.
3: Yes. Uh, so he was a representative from. Uh, a fairly he, he was from wealthy he was from wealth and he represented two counties, one that was a very wealthy white county, and the other one was a poorer and majority county of color. And so his in, in this debate about investment in education, he was he was just befuddled by why I would argue for pouring more resources into communities that in his mind had simply refused to educate themselves. And he said to me, "Well, you know, Stacy, you you turned out fine. Why why would we need to do this?" And my answer to him was what I said: "Look, not everyone is born with my parents. My parents figured out, you know, the cartography of Gulfport, Mississippi, to get us zoned into the best school possible while we still lived on the poorest street imaginable in that side of town. And that was before GPS. Families should not have to do the type of navigation manipulation." and prayer that my parents had to do to guarantee opportunity for their children. That is antithetical to who we hold ourselves out to be as a nation. I believe that there is no guarantee of equality of success, but there should be a guarantee of equality of opportunity. And there should be no dueling notion of economics if we are doing our, if our systems are situated properly, if we are doing our work right, then we can achieve an equality of opportunity and we can achieve an equity of outcome that meets what people are willing and able to put into the systems.
2: One of the things I was thinking about after reading that story was something um, Jared Kushner just said, because it's easy to think, well, this is stuff going on in weird, you know, like state legislatures somewhere, um, because lots of stories come out of state legislatures. But he just said um, on Fox and Friends, One thing we've seen a lot of in the black community, which is mostly Democrat, is that President Trump's policies are the policies that can help people break out of the problems that they are complaining about. But he can't want them to be successful more than they want to be successful. Coming at the time of COVID, this coming at the time of gigantic levels of unemployment. I think the the theme of this conversation in part, and and it it animates a lot of the Republican Party's uh, attack on democracy itself, is that there are no power differentials. People just want an, an an unfair hand up. If you don't win the competition, it's on you. If you can't navigate the election system, it's on you. And all the time they're they're throwing out barriers to that. I'm, I'm just curious how you read the election from 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 that perspective and if the actual and if Joe Biden and the Democrats win, if you think that will actually change in a way that people will notice in their lives
3: I, I think that that animating dynamic in the Republican Party is real. It is pervasive and it is unlikely to be eliminated in a single election cycle or three. I do not believe that we elect saviors. I am hopeful that a Biden administration will approach these questions with not just an empathy, with, but with an actual understanding of the historical impediments that are not long ago history. These are very real, very current, very modern examples of the challenges, but they are born of things that have been happening and didn't stop until maybe the 670s or early 80s. I mean, we have to remember the Voting Rights Act, when it was reauthorized in 75, that was the first time it actually took care of Native American and Latinos who were still being subjected to literacy tests by the man who went on to become the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court that the inability of Blacks to build wealth through housing is directly related to federal policy. And so there is a either misunderstanding of history or a deliberate refusal to acknowledge the connections of the laws and policies that have guided the lives of so many who have been oppressed or underinvested in for so long in this country. I think the Biden administration will understand that because if you read the Build Back Better plan, if you look at what is in their racial equity plan, it is an incredible acknowledgement of what remains to be done, and it is still not enough. And that is why democracy in its fullest form is so important, because we need people who wake up and believe that they get to vote for a mayor, for a governor, for a president, but that if they also get to vote for school board members who do not run on the proposition of eliminating access to their education. And when you have a robust democracy that is fully engaged and that is fully accessible to those who are eligible, what you then see are actual changes to the outcomes of lives in part because, again, there are more of us than there have been before. The demographic inflection point isn't simply a change in who votes for Democrat or Republican. It's a change in who can participate and force those changes to be permanent, and that, I think, is what's the most terrifying part of this evolution that we face for Republicans. It was one thing to try to block communities from participation, and it was quite convenient that certain communities exempted or, or simply didn't participate because of past history that was not actually you know, their direct fault in 2020, but they've enjoyed it. But the reality is, whether it is a Democrat or a Republican or a Federalist who imposes voter suppression, if we as a nation can finally break those barriers and create opportunity for participation, I believe that we can make the changes we need. And it will not happen in a single Biden administration. It will not happen in a decade, but we can lay the foundations and we can make aggressive progress Because the most important part of the demographic changes we're seeing is that they're not going to stop.
2: I think that is a a great place to end. I know you've got other important work to be doing. So let me ask you, what's always our final question here, which is what are three books that have influenced you and you would recommend to the audience?
3: I would recommend Ida by Paula Giddings. It's a wonderful biography of Ida B. Wells. I would recommend Charged by Emily Bazelon. If you want, want to understand why criminal justice reform has to be broader and deeper and incredibly localized. I would read her book. And then one of my favorite fiction uh, works is The Intuitionist by Colson Whitehead. Uh, It's just a beautiful book that examines race and class and does it through a woman who inspects elevators using intuition versus empiricism.
2: Uh, I will read anything by Colson Whitehead. So I'm going to pick that up. Stacey Abrams, thank you so much.
3: Ezra, thank you. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you to Stacey Abrams for being here, to all of you for being here, to Raja Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing. Go vote, go vote, go vote. These are Client Shows Vox Media Podcast Production.